Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Over the years, Jerry Dawes has written hundreds of articles about the foods and wines of Spain for a wide range of publications, including the New York Times, The Wine Spectator, Sante, Spain Gourmetour, and Wines from Spain News. He's just published a collection of some of those pieces in a book with Lots of photographs and a foreword by the great chef Jose Andres called Sunset in a Glass, Adventures of a Food and Wine Warrior in Spain. And he joins us now to discuss what he's learned during his many adventures in Iberia. Welcome to our show, Jerry. Hi, Leonard. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you fine. Uh, oh, great. That's fabulous. Pardon it... my perhaps rough voice because I've gotten a touch of... Omicron or whatever, but anyway, it's been a cold. It hasn't been terribly serious, fortunately. Oh, Thank got, you, you so much for having me on. I miss you up in this neck of the woods when you used to live up in Pauling, and we'd see each other frequently. <laughs> but um, I'm so glad to be on your program. Uh, didn't uh, the, your story, the story you tell here, all begin when you were in the Navy during the Vietnam War? Yeah, I got very lucky because... <clears throat> I felt the draft, the, the hot breath of the draft board breathing down my neck. And so instead of getting drafted into what I would consider two years of guaranteed death in Vietnam in the infantry or something in the Army, I signed up for four years in the Navy, astutely calculating that aircraft carriers didn't invade rice paddies. So I have the luck of the draw after a number of <clears throat> misadventures that including getting spinal meningitis, one of two people at Great Lakes Naval Station in Waukegan, Illinois. I got sent to Russian language school in Monterey, California, and of all things in the infinite logic and wisdom of the military, I got sent to Spain. Yeah, to well, how did Spain. that happen? Spain is quite far from Russia. Uh, did they well, have you, were you monitoring Russians something? 50 Russians had 50-some-odd ships and two so-called uh-huh. aircraft carriers that were nothing but helicopter carriers in the Mediterranean. Uh-huh. And we we had a huge antenna field, and we l- listened in on them um, and gathered information electronically and uh, by uh, radio waves. And I flew out an unarmed A3 and Willie Victor C-130 aircraft chasing the Soviet fleet around the Mediterranean, and also we flew up to Germany and tested the defenses off the coast of Poland and East Germany and, and Russia. Um, but anyway, I, I got to Spain and fell in love with it literally before I touched ground. I, I flew from Fort McGuire, New Jersey, to Rota, Spain in a military aircraft, and I looked down and I saw palm trees and cherry vines and San Luca de Barameda and the Guadalquivir emptying into the Atlantic. And I was hit, I, I was gobsmacked before I hit the ground. Well, that was in 1968. Didn't Generalissimo Francisco Franco remain the dictator of Spain until 1975? He was, yeah, a, he was a fascist. Under- was he considered a friend of the United States at the time? Well, of course, because uh, the United States is paying them a ton of money to put military bases in four or five places around Spain, in Moron de la Frontera and Rota, um, in Barajas outside of uh, Madrid, and in Zaragoza. And I think there was one other place, but I don't remember which. But Rota 
Roto's on the southern coast and in, in actually within the Sherry District and across the bay from Cadiz, one of the great, great unsung cities of the world, uh, continue, continuously in operation for over 3,000 years. And uh, it's it can be quite a magical place. I mean, there was the American Enclave down there, but as you could see from my book, I, I quickly started going to Sevilla. Hmm. Well, I'm reminded. That, go ahead, finish what you're saying. Well, Sevilla, <clears throat> Sevilla is one of the most magical towns in the world, and one of the most romantic. And to be there in the late '60s, even under Franco, was a, a truly incredible experience and easy to fall in love with and also as a as a single person i was very much interested in the opposite sex and and, uh, and there were much better pickings in the back packing young women from all over europe and and, and america uh backpacking through spain in those days than there were competing with the too often many times wooed girls in the bars in Rota. Rota is the, the, the town that you were stationed in. Yeah. And uh, obviously the, the women there, many of them were there because there was a military presence. Yeah, and uh, there were bar girls, and not that many of them were prostitutes. Uh, they, I mean, there were a few prostitutes around, but they were they were basically working there some of them were Spanish girls who'd gotten pregnant and had to leave their kid with a grandmother and have some way of making a living and tips from American servicemen. And the American servicemen were lonely and they wanted to talk to girls, so they'd sit there and drink. they keep the wheels hot on the San Miguel beer trucks all, all day long. Was there a language barrier or did everybody speak English? Well, a lot of people spoke pidgin English and some people actually spoke English, but Spain... Unlike Portugal in those days, Spain was not as fluent in English. Um, so I found very quickly if I wanted to order things in Sevilla and order food and things like and and drinks or anything like that or communicate with anybody, I'd better learn Spanish. So I started getting a lot of biosmosis and I started taking courses on the base. And um, it morphed, and over the years, I became fluent to the point where, when I'm there, a lot of times I think in Spanish. Well, you started exploring what was happening outside of your military base. W- were the uh, were other uh, sailors doing something similar, or were you more curious than most? Well, there were a few of them, but as you'll see from the story in the book, <clears throat> I first went to Sevilla with a friend of mine who had been there before, and he got us off the train at the wrong place because he insisted there were two stations in Sevilla, which there were not. And I decided we were on our way to Madrid. So I made him get off the train with me while it was still in motion in some switching yards about three kilometers outside of Sevilla. I knew we were on our way to Madrid or God knows where. So we got off and uh, we ended up in a Pueblo then. It's an enclosed suburb now uh, called San Geronimo. And there was a, a street market and kind of with pigeon Spanish and and hand hand um, uh, signals. We asked a woman how it could get to Sevilla, and which I had seen disappear behind me on the train. Yeah. <laughs> I had seen the famous Heralda Tower, bell tower that used to be the the 
the minaret uh, for the Moorish mosque. I saw it disappearing behind us, and I knew we were leaving Sevilla. So we got on a bus and rode literally about three kilometers, and the bus stop was right in front of the gate of the Macarena, which is one of the most revered spots in, in all of Sevilla, but it's really a Sevillano spot uh, where this great virgin comes out during Holy Week. And so I entered the Macarena gate into Sevilla for the first time, and no tourist is going to do that because it's not on the main roads that come into Sevilla where tourism might enter the city. But it was the, the gate that Spanish kings always entered when they first, on their first trip to Sevilla. Now you're, so I, go well, ahead, finish. No, well, because of the eccentricity of my friend, I had the privilege of doing that quite by accident, total, total serendipitous experience, and that's how I entered Sevilla for the first time. Now, you, uh, you didn't know much about food and wine at the time, right? Uh, and since you no, did, my grandmother had a at a plate lunch special uh, mm-hmm. restaurant in Southern Illinois, so I grew up in a in a restaurant kind of, but. Um, I didn't really know anything much about it. I dabbled a little bit of it when I was stationed in Monterey at Russian Language School at the Defense Language Institute. But uh, I soon, later after, uh, I soon got with an international crowd of people who knew all these restaurants and all these provincial capitals and provincial places around Spain. But weren't most food journalists writing about France and Italy at that time? Uh, they, they... Yeah, and Jose Andres, God bless him, because Jose Andres is a great human being who does an incredible amount. And with his World Central Kitchen, he's, I mean, he's going to eventually be awarded the Nobel Prize for what he does. And I'm extremely flattered that he wrote such a glowing, I didn't have to pay him, I must add. Mm-hmm. A, a he wrote glowing. the forward to your book. Yeah, and he credits me a lot because... I was so in love with Spain that I, I came back, when I came back to New York and started writing about food, I was writing about Spain because that's what I knew. Other people were going to France. And by the way, a lot of American chefs were going to France, 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 France hmm. to do their stages. They didn't really think much about Italy or Spain or anywhere else. Then when Ferran Adria came along and drew all that attention, partly because of an article I wrote and was edited by my great editor, Jim Porras, at Food Arts Magazine. It was the first article written about Ferran Adria, who became this sensational, hmm. world-renowned chef. And, and what happened was uh, um, consumers don't read Food Arts because it was a Marvin Schenken publication from Wine Spectator. And they, he, it was a giveaway to people in the trade. And if you notice, there were a lot of kitchen equipment, uh, restaurant equipment and things, uh, advertisements in the magazine. So it, w- it was a giveaway, but it's extraordinarily influential because all the chefs, restaurateurs, hoteliers and, and people read that magazine. And so Jim assigned me, when I proposed it to him, he assigned me to write about Ferran. And ours was the first article published in any important magazine in the United States about Ferran Adria, and it was a pretty in-depth article. And I went there cold turkey, 
and I had talked to Mario Batali and a few other chefs, and I got division of opinions, as we say in Spain, about the worth of the place and the chef, and I didn't really know what to think. And I basically had like something like 26, what I call later tapas with attitude. And I was going like, she loves me, she loves me not. It was like genius clown, genius clown. I, some of the dishes with the foam and stuff, I just went went right by me. I, I couldn't, it, it was so weird. It really, it was so weird. Not that it was bad, it was so weird. But then there were some dishes, including one tripe, which I'm not very fond of. I'll eat a top of it once in a while in Madrid. But tripe, the tripe that he served me was a straight up course in the middle of all this other stuff. And it was very, very good. And I said, well, this guy can cook. Fortunately, because of my involvement in Spain influence to some degree, but fortunately I made the right decision to uh, present it on a very even keel and not be judgmental about what I thought was pretty weird cuisine at the time. And, yeah, well, and uh, they say that I, Spain is not a good place for vegetarians. But Americans have been interested in Spain over the years. Washington Irving wrote about living in Alhambra, didn't he? And, of course, Hemingway, uh, he was uh, so in love with Spain, there are now statues of him in Spain. Yeah, well, Washington Irving was one of the luckiest bastards on the planet because he is one of the few people in history who ever, a foreigner, who ever got to live in the Alhambra. Hmm. And it was pretty run down at that, that time. I mean, it was just like anybody could walk in and out of there. They had no real appreciation for it. And there were families living in there and everything else. But he lived there and uh, and wrote the Tales of the Alhambra. It's a fantastic book about the Alhambra. And uh, Hemingway, of course, was madly in love with a, fell madly in love with the bullfight, but also connected with following the bullfights around Spain. Um, was also what happens is you learn a ton about regional cooking and regional wines. Now, Hemingway used to carry the Rosés of Navarre, which are some of the best on the planet. They're 100% free-run juice, most of them. And you say free-run juice. Why free-run juice back in Hemingway's day? It's very simple. They would bleed off, let the grapes, just the weight of the grapes, press the wine they didn't press it they didn't crush it they just let the weight of the grapes and they drained off the rosé part and then later they they pressed the other part and made red garnacha wines out of it so they got the immediate uh, like Beaujolais Nouveau sale out of the rosé to get some cash flow and then they sold the red wines later when they had a little age on them so that's why Garnacha Rosados from 100% Garnacha grape. Garnacha is a Spanish grape. Not, it's not Grenache, it's Garnacha. And uh, they, um, he drank those wines and they're magnificent. I'm drinking some right now that I still have left from my wine company, the Spanish Artisan Wine Spirits uh, Group, um, which went to belly up during because of the COVID business. But anyway, I'm still drinking 2014, 2016, 2015 rosés that are magnificent. Mm. My guest on today's London Lopity at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM is Jerry Dawes, D-A-W-E-S. 
His uh, book that we're discussing is called Sunset in a Glass, Adventures of a Food and Wine Road Warrior in Spain, which is really a collection of articles and uh, some of his photographs and other people's photographs as well. Um, I'm reminded Very few of other people's. The other people's photographs are photographs of me. <laughs> I'm reminded on this historic day in U.S. history that there was a coup d'etat attempt in Spain in, in February 1981 when, when 200 armed civil guard officers invaded the Congress of Deputies during a vote to elect the president of the government. Uh, they were neo-fascists, if I remember. Were you there at the time? No, I, I had left in 75. At the end of 75, my wife was pregnant with our first child and we decided that we'd better make gainful employment so we came to new york to become rich and famous hmm. neither of which really worked but anyway um yeah I, I i heard i heard about it and i saw it on television and stuff like that neo-fascists uh were you aware of the political situation uh, at the time Oh, yeah. Well, we knew it was volatile and anything could happen. But fortunately, Spanish democracy won out. Now, the question is, because what happened there, uh, if what the only thing that saved American democracy on January 6th of last year is the fact that Washington, D.C. had laws that if you're caught with a gun in Washington, D.C., you go up the river. So they didn't all bring their guns. They had them stashed out in Virginia in hotels, but they didn't go into the Capitol with guns. That's why we still have a semi-functioning democracy. We would not have had they gone in with their guns. Well, one of the differences in, all over. One of the big differences. Uh, well, maybe it'll happen here, but. Uh, as a result of that coup attempt, uh, the monarchy was strengthened. Well, yeah, because Juan Carlos, what happened was they tried to call out the, the army and the guy in Valencia came out. But my best friend, my Spanish brother, is a guy named Manolo Esquivias. His father was a Capitan General de Sevilla and the real military heffy in Sevilla above him uh, was a guy named Mary and and my my friend Manolo's father, whom I knew fairly well as well later on, he talked him into not bringing the tanks out in the streets in Sevilla. And the king was on the king was on television all night talking people down off the ledge. And King Juan Carlos, who subsequently in the, the last few years has kind of become disgraced because of some corruption issues, but he kind of saved Spain and is credited with saving Spain uh, during that coup attempt. And that coup attempt, they were firing guns in the chamber of the Cortes in Madrid. Now, you decided to stay after you were discharged from the Navy, and that's when you began to explore Spain. How soon were you joined by your late wife, Diana Valenti Dawes? Well... <clears throat> everything ties together. I had extraordinary strokes of luck because I got out of the Navy. They gave, now, remember this, during Vietnam, they were drafting people left and right, people going to Canada and everything else. At the same time, they were. this, this is how cynical government is and how things work. 
um, they were they were drafting people left and right, and people were fighting it, and their demonstrations and everything else. Here we are in 1969, and they're offering people like me who had achieved E5 status and was getting finally paid a little bit, teensy bit more money than we were when we were A1, A2, and A3, and so on. And of course, when you, when you let out the more expensive ones uh, three months early, and you replace them with much cheaper ones. It, in other words, they were drafting people, and people were fighting the draft. In the meantime, they're giving three and four month early outs to people with higher ranks. Like you. Yeah. So, so you decided to, you decided to stay instead of come home. Well, I walked out. I, I was pretty well hooked, and I had a friend who said, "Come to Barcelona and." And uh, I'll get you. He was in production for 20th Century Fox, and I'll get you a job as an extra on The Great White Hope, and you make like 1,500 pesetas a day, which to me in those days was money because I got out the, I walked out the front gate of Rota with $500 in American Express checks and nothing between me and that. I figured I'd be begging for food on the streets. And I did have a free military flight back in the space of a year if I wanted to use it. So, I I went off um, lollygagging around Spain a little bit to get to Barcelona in the first weeks of January 1970 to work on The Great White Hope, which is where I met James Earl Jones and had my anecdotal adventures with him. Mm. And why was uh, it shot in Barcelona? They, well, they had filmed in Arizona and uh, Nevada. It had, it had to be a place that ended with Ona? Is that it? I, I, I would guess. I would guess. Uh, but anyway, they they went there and they used this uh, big stadium, um, and it was non-union, so I was able to take photos on the set. And over a course of time, and also because we knew this guy, Tony Brand, me and one other guy whose name escapes me over the years has, has been lost in the mists of personal history. He, he, uh, he and I, Tony said, go over and tell him you're working for Fox and they give you the employee discount. So we went to the Ritz Hotel, and they gave me the employee discount, $5 a night. I was paying for a room in the Ritz, and Jones and Marty Ritt, the director, Bernie Guffey, the cinematographer, and Larry Terman, the producer, everybody was staying there. Jane Alexander, uh, Bob Daly came over to do some stuff, Larry Schiller, um, and we... We're sitting around the lobby. Next thing I know, I'm sitting next to James Earl Jones between him and Larry Terman. I'm saying to Larry Terman, I said, what do you do on a picture, sir? And he says, oh, I'm the producer. I said, you know, Hick from Southern Illinois, town of 450 people. I say, uh, well, what's a producer do? And he actually was patient enough to explain a little bit about what he did. And then I said, who's that guy over there with the beard and the cowboy hat? And he says, that's Bernie Guffey. He's the... He's the direct. He's the cinematographer, and I said, "Wow, what's he done?" He said, "Well, he won Oscars for Bonnie and Clyde and From Here to Eternity." I said, "Wow, this is tall cotton here." Then you know the rest of it, and then I had these experiences with Jones, which you can read about in the book. There's a whole chapter mm-hmm. on my experiences with James Earl Jones and the Great White Hope in Barcelona. There. 
You also write about bulls. Bulls, well, there are bullfighting rings almost everywhere. And didn't you join in the run of the bulls at Pamplona? Yeah, there's a whole chapter on that. It's called A Morning's Pleasure. And that's after Hemingway's line about the men and boys of Pamplona allow themselves to be chased through the streets of Pamplona for a morning's pleasure. When you see so, you write that, you felt you had to. Why? Well, yeah, anybody who has any creds, wants to have any creds in Pamplona, especially if you're a type that's not visiting just once and you plan to come back and you're involved with some of these people, as I became involved with, uh, you have to at least be able to say you ran or stood the bulls once or so so on because you're surrounded by guys who are running bulls every day. So I ran with the American Matador, John Fulton, and four other guys, and we got caught in one of the biggest pileups in history. So I made a, I made a pact with this big brown fighting bull from the ranch of Juan Pedro de Make, one of the most respected ranches in Spain. And uh, I, I was standing there for what I felt was like uh, three or four hours, but it was more like 45 seconds with my hands on his back, belly to belly with him. But his horns were kind of against the wall and there were too many people blocking so he couldn't move much so he couldn't get to me with his horns or get to me at all. And so eventually I, I was able to slide out from behind him. But when I got when I got back to the bar and was having coffee and cognac and bre- and croissants for breakfast, uh, there were, everybody was talking about this pileup and everything that they, we had all been in. And I suddenly realized there was something that was very vivid about this that nobody was talking about. And I literally put my hands to my nose and I could smell the bull. I could smell him on my jacket. And I went down into the the basement bar of the Bar Choco in the Plaza de Castilla in Pamplona. And I washed my hands of the Enciero forever. Did you, uh, do people get mauled for, by the bulls on a regular basis? Oh, yeah. And... And can anyone join the group of runners? Could you just decide, yeah, you, I'm yeah, going to run with them today? you got to get in the streets. They're, they're run for eight days. Every day there's a bullfight. They're run in Pomblona from July the 7th through the 14th. And, um, yes, you, you can run. They have prohibited people now. They try to prohibit them, and, and they will pull you out and fine you if you try to stand them because a lot of people, including – including some quite elderly people, uh, people who are 70, 80 years old, stood the bulls. Michener, when he was in the late 60s, was standing the bulls on the famous Santo Domingo Hill where the crazies run down the hill towards the bulls and then turn on their heel and run with them. Michener was standing in standing in this doorway, and a bull killed, killed two people that turned out to be fatal injuries right at his feet. And he's just standing there like a statue, and the bull didn't get to him, but he actually went back the next day and did it again. Many of your stories involve meeting the locals. I've visited a number of other countries, but I I don't think that I was ever invited into someone's home unless we had a friend in common, which didn't happen very often. You ever go to St. Leonard, you'll see that this this book and the subsequent books, volume two, three, and four, believe it or not, I may call them book two and three and four after this, but 
I've, I've about got volume two written, you'll find out it's really, there's food and there's wine and there's Spain and there's adventure, but it's really people. And the people are vivid. I'm going to have a section in the, in the next uh, book um, about the women that I've known in Spain. And, and these are platonic friendships that I've had for years and years and years. Incredible women I've known in Spain, uh, in the food world, a lot of them in the food world, but in other worlds. Uh, I have known many of the major bullfighters in Spain intimately, cheese makers, wine makers, where I've talked hours and hours and hours into the night with them, sometimes tell them I don't like their wines. Um, artists, uh, it, it's a fascinating place. And I wish I had a hundred bucks for every real friend I've got in Spain because I would be wealthy. I mean, the people in Spain are magnificent. And like anywhere else, not everybody's perfect, but they're phenomenal people. And a friend there is a friend indeed. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. who's uh, written, well, he, there's a collection of his writings in a new book called Sunset in a Glass, Adventures of a Food and Wine Road Warrior in Spain. Jerry, many peoples have occupied Spain throughout its history, the Carthaginians, the Romans, the German tribal confederations, most notably the Visigoths, and you've conducted tours throughout Spain. Are there still traces of those cultures in some parts of the country? Oh, it's... uh... It's saturated with it. You can't literally can't go anywhere without seeing the layers and layers. One of the things, believe it or not, for a Protestant kid from a, I mean, a hick kid from Southern Illinois from a town called Alto Pass of 450 people. Um, I didn't have running water till I was 16, believe it or not, in the house. Um, Sephardic Spain has become one of my I wouldn't say it's a hobby. One of my uh, aficions that that uh, I've followed uh, pretty faithfully f- for many years, ferreting out all kinds of places all over the country. But didn't be, the Spanish Inquisition pretty much wipe out a rich Muslim and Jewish cultural history? Well, since there's so much intermarriage and stuff, it's really hard to wipe out when it's embedded. And, and a lot of Jews converted hmm. and continued practicing secret Judaism, but um, you, you cannot eradicate a culture that was as vibrant and deep and really impactful as Jewish culture was in Spain. At one point, it was literally almost on the level with Islam and Christianity. Um, not quite because of the difference in the sizes of the population 
and the number of people and so on. But um, great, great impact left all over Spain. I can I can show you altarpieces of some of the great cathedrals in Spain are done by the Jewish artisans. The you, see, you mentioned minarets from the the Muslims. Uh, oh, the, the Geraldo in Sevilla is one of the most magnificent towers in the world. It's topped by a kind of a Baroque bell tower and, and with a weather vane on the top with a kind of a shield that turns in, in the wind. And it's called La Giralda because of that, because of the thing on top. But it was a, it was a minaret and it had wide ramps in it. So the, the, the guy who went up to do the call to prayer in the evening could ride a horse up to, because it was, it's pretty tall. You ride a horse to the top. Well, how much responsibility do Ferdinand and Isabella share in uh, in the, the the negative aspect of this history? Well, they're uh, very they're very 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 controversial, and it's tempting to say because people say this all the time, but you have to see things reflected off the times. And all those internecine battles over the years during the so-called reconquest from 711 when the Moors first entered Spain until 1492 until Isabel and Ferdinand defeated the Moors in Granada and took the keys to the city and ended the so-called Moorish occupation, uh, so-called ending of the Moorish occupation of Spain. Uh, but Isabel and Ferdinand the problem with Isabel and Ferdinand was I Isabel was surrounded by these people are not my favorite people in the world, Dominicans, Dominican priests who are constantly urging her to do this or do that. And basically to expel the Jews, they want to expel the Moors. But I mean, it, it, for instance, expelling the Moors when they finally did in the next, the following century, devastated agriculture in Valencia. But back to the point about one of the reasons that that they expelled the Jews was not just about religion and this, that, and the other, because she had very, very key and high Jewish advisors as well. But, but there was already a Catholic Church Inquisition throughout Europe at that time. Well, there nobody likes to talk about the fact that they're were Inquisition in France and Italy and Portugal and every, everywhere else uh, before the Spanish Inquisition. But my theory is, and I think it could be borne out, is that they ran up significant debts to nobles and, you know, the dukes and the condes of the world and for loan and loans from very wealthy Jews to for the conquest of Granada to finish the reconquest, they ran up significant debts. And one of the ways to discharge some of those debts is to confiscate Jewish property and wealth mm -hmm. and to renege on the debts. Well, Spain and better than the Jews, right? <laughs> there's a, a lot of negative stuff in this story. Spain played a major role in the history of slavery and the European exploitation of Africa and the colonization well, I, of like large areas of the Americas. You, that the United States played a hell of a role in the development of slavery. Well, but the slaves originally started being brought over by Spain. Uh, yeah, but we, we were the market. Uh-huh. So, uh, and that, that's after the genocide. Yeah. 
Well, anyway, Spain uh, does have. Did, did, are those things even discussed in Spain? That mixed history. Oh yeah, there is, now there is during Franco. Of course, it was all, it was all official official propaganda lines and all that stuff. But now, now there are very serious scholars who've examined all of this stuff inside and out. And I mean, there's um, there is a great revival in the interest in Jewish history in Spain. Um, Moorish history's long kind of long been documented, but now all the even these outback towns are celebrating uh, their the remaining Jewish monuments, synagogues, Jewish quarters. I live in the old Jewish quarter in Sevilla for three and a half years. It's quite a quite an unbelievable place. Well, Spain is interestingly uh, composed of 17 autonomous regions uh, that include the Canary and Balearic Islands, two autonomous cities, uh, small islands off the coast of Morocco that are called places of sovereignty. Is it fair to say that Spain can be seen as as uh, being a home to a number of different cultures with a, with different languages as well? Yeah, there are four base, basic different languages and, and several more dialects. For instance, Gallego, which is um, Portuguese's offshoot of Gallego. And then, of course, you have Basque, which only the Basque can understand. And you've got Catalan, which is on both sides of the border. Valencian, and, Galician. And Valenciano is a dialect different than Catalan. Mm-hmm. And Andaluth is... is well, you can hear when you hear Cubans speak and you hear some South Americans speak, you're, you're listening down to Luth um, with the dropping, uh, droppings, the ends of words and stuff like that. Um, but the, the thing about it that makes this so marvelous, and I suppose you could say the same for France and even Italy as well and other places. But the thing that makes this 17 different regions so marvelous and even the 50 provinces is that they they're so different in culture and and um, although they have a common Spanish culture, they're very different in customs, fiestas, <clears throat> food, hmm. wine, uh, all kinds of things. And it's sometimes it's like going to a different country in a way, except there's a common language. Um, and they're, they're fascinating. They're absolutely fascinating. There are reasons to love them all. That's why I never want to see Spain's split apart. For me, I'm in love with the, the Spains, which is what it's sometimes called there, because you have Catalonia, which could easily be another country. The Basque country could be another country, except you got to understand that everybody is intermarried with Castilian Spaniards and Andaluces, because the Catalans, richest part of Spain, um, were used Andaluth and Estermania and Castellano and Andalusian workers in the factories and stuff to build their wealth. And they have barrios. Fran Adria speaks Catalan with an Andaluz accent because he grew up in a barrio that was dominated by Andalusians. And then when they talk about they want to separate from Spain, well, okay. Then you're going to leave half your relatives on the other side of the border, right? And then there's the fact that Portugal is right next to Spain. Does that influence... The, uh, the the bordering areas. Oh yeah, it has it has to influence it. It, it influences a great deal, and a lot of similar customs on either side of the border. But I I I get kind of ticked off a little bit about 
when I see guide to Spain and Portugal and that's like saying guide to Spain and France, hmm. um, uh, guide to Spanish and Portuguese wines. Come on. These are two different countries. They're very different countries. Uh, they speak different languages. They have different kinds of wines. They have different uh, cuisines with some similarities, but they're, they're basically different countries. And I respect Portugal as a different country, but Spain is mine. And, but, um, but Spain is also borders on France, and yeah. it shares all sorts of, uh, at least in the north, all sorts of uh, cultural similarities with, with at least southern France. Yeah, but that, the, the biggest difference between that and Portugal <coughs> is the Pyrenees Mountains. Mm -hmm. The Pyrenees Mountains, while there is some bleed over on both sides, and they've been smuggling back and forth for centuries and centuries and centuries, and interchanges between the villages on either side, you still have those mountains. So the bleeding down of French customs and so on, much further down from the mountains is, is not as evident as, as it might be between say Portugal and Estremadura and those, those and Galicia. Like one day I was in Galicia and went to see a winemaker in Monterrey and um, before I knew it, I was in, I was five kilometers into Portugal. They had to turn around and come back and another three kilometers into Spain. I was in Oimbra, which is uh, the Oimbra, which is a small village where this marvelous family winery, Triai, Mexico Day and Mencia wines. And um, I had slipped over the border of Portugal without even knowing it. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. We're speaking with Jerry Dawes, whose book, Sunset in a Glass, Adventures of a Food and Wine Road Warrior in Spain, is a collection of, of essays, uh, articles, and, and photographs. Uh, this, actually, there's only, this is just volume one. Now, you talk about wine. Archaeologists believe that grapes were first cultivated in Spain sometime between 4,000 and 3,000 B.C., long before the wine-growing culture. The Phoenicians founded a trading post of uh, Cadiz around 1100 B.C., so, uh, but then Spanish wines were traded throughout the, the Roman world. Yeah, well, they used to, you know, the, they dig up all the time, they dredge up from the the depths of the sea a lot of times in places like San Luca de Baramea, these amphoras where they used to ship olive oil and wine mm -hmm. to Rome where wine and it really started that's for somebody who's a different kind of scholar than me and um, doesn't interest me a tremendous amount where it actually started but Spain has got wine from one end to the other not all of it is good much better than it used to be in some ways. In some ways, after Robert Parker scalded everybody's palate with new oak and high alcohol, um, I would say that to my palate, and 90% of it, as in other countries, as in California, is not drinkable, not really palatable to me. But um, there's a lot of great stuff, especially from small artisan producers. Well, Spain is the second largest producer of wine in the world behind Italy, but ahead of France and the United States. You're saying they may, that they a may have moved into first by now. Well, but you're saying that a lot of those wines are not all that distinguished. So they're just mass produced to, to be had with lunch and dinner? Well, to some degree, but then there's a lot, what, 
what Spain went did for many years because of places like Rioja and Sherry and Cava, it was a method of making wines. It was a way of making wines, a, a technique of making wines. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like a lot of vineyards in Burgundy based on a based on a plot of land. Well, that that goes out the window in Spain, goes out the window in Galicia, where there are a lot of those small Burgundy-like producers who are producing truly distinguished wines that are basically unknown because they only produce maybe a thousand cases, but are splendid wines. I mean, I think you've had a couple of them with me at my place and at the Ibiza restaurant in Chappaqua. But um, in any case, um, real terroir exists in Spain, as you might imagine, with all those mountain ranges and valleys and different microclimates and stuff. Uh, they have the ability of making wines of equal to Burgundy. And when I when I say there's a lot of junk being made, there's a lot of junk being made in Italy. There's a lot of junk being made in France. There's a lot of junk being made in California. Without generalizing about Spanish wines, overall are pretty good. Yet I when I go into a wine shop, I don't see a, a large section devoted to Spain. A lot more to France, Italy, and the United States. Well, it's like American chefs used to be before they. They started going to Spain, doing their stages there, and then coming back and opening Spanish restaurants. So everybody believes that France, France, France is the god of everything, and some degrees it was. Um, uh, but the, the modern winemaking techniques and and climate change has sort of erased a lot of those kinds of boundaries. And not all Burgundy was good. Not all Bordeaux was good. Not all Rhone Valley wine was good. I used to sell sell it for Wildman and Robert Haas and people like that for years. And I know how good it can be, but not all of it was that way. Now, we haven't talked about cheeses, but what cheeses are unique to Spain? And do they vary by region as the, the wines do? Oh, it's incredible. It didn't used to be, and the reason was... The reason was that Franco suppressed um, suppressed uh, uh, art, artisanal cheeses in favor of co-ops. Why was that? Um, huh? Why did he do that? I, I would have thought that he would have been proud of having distinct cheeses. No, no, individual cheeses, too much individuality going oh. on there. So, Anti-fascist. Uh, uh, yeah. Anti-fascist Jesus. Yeah. So once he was gone, I, like now, my my friend, there's a whole chapter on my friend uh, um, Marino Gonzalez in Asturias, hmm. and he he brought to prominence something thirty or forty different artisan um, Asturian cheeses, and then there are those phenomenal cheeses. In Estremadura, the tortas, torta del Casar, torta de la Serena, that are made according to Jewish and Moorish dietary laws, which means you can't take the rennet from the stomach of a lamb or other animal to coagulate the cheese. They use uh, they use milk milk thistle uh, to coagulate the cheese. They'll 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 pull uh, the milk thistle. Uh, all those little, little pistols or whatever they are, there'll be a whole bucket full of them. They'll put water in that, and then they add that to the cheese and it coagulates the cheese. It gives a mildly bitter 
taste and the, those cheeses come out cream creamy like Vacheron Mondor in France and they they just could be these marvelous runny cheeses those are made uh, according to Jewish and Moorish dietary laws from way way back well though pork is very big uh and although Spanish cuisine is typically Mediterranean in character with, with olive oil, garlic, onions, tomatoes, peppers, uh, it's been said that vegetarians and vegans may have a difficult time in a restaurant. That's baloney. Pardon, pardon non-vegetarian word baloney, but that's baloney. <laughs> um, the, the, um, the, the fact that the idea there are no vegetables in Spain is because people expect to get them as side dishes with their main course instead of ordering them as a separate course, which is the way they're listed on the menu and the way they're served. Artichokes, uh, cardoons, um, uh, all kinds, asparagus, green beans, uh, baby fava beans and fava beans, all kinds of stuff. Phenomenal plain lettuce, tomato, and 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 onion um, salads just dressed with vinegar and olive oil are magnificent. And there, there are lots of other things. You know, they grow a lot of avocados in Spain, for instance. Hmm. But the the idea that, that and if, to, to the point, one of the most famous dishes in Spain is gazpacho, an incredible vegetarian dish, cold soup, as it were, and salmorejo, which is, a kind of a thickened version of gazpacho. And there's a Those Tomatino are, tom- tomato festival in Buñol. Yeah, well, they throw tons of tomatoes at one another. And onions and leeks and tapas bars. You go in, you find all kinds of vegetables that's offered. <clears throat> Egg dishes and fish dishes and so on. But fish, by the way, and shellfish, some of the best in the world in Spain. You made a statement about Spain being a Mediterranean cu- cuisine. That's a commonly held misnomer, um, uh, misunderstanding of what Spain really is. Spain is only half Mediterranean. The other half is Atlantic, and that includes everything west of Gibraltar, and that includes everything in the north around Galicia and the Asturias and the Basque Country and Cantabria. It's the Atlantic influence on wines and on food up there and on cheeses is very remarkable and pronounced, and it's it's not that they don't have bleed over and don't use olive oil and garlic and stuff like that, but Mediterranean wines and Mediterranean food is different than the Atlantic-influenced foods. Now, we've been talking about this book that you say is <laughs> volume one of a, of a series of books. You tell a lot of stories here. You still have a lot more stories to tell? Um, probably will not live long enough to tell them all. <laughs> well, the, the, and, obviously with, appreciated in Spain, the, the Academia Española de Gastronomía awarded you the Premio Nacional de Gastronomía uh, Prize for your work in making Spanish food and wine known internationally. It was a very slow year, candidates. <laughs> <laughs> No, I appreciated that. Some of the people behind my getting that were Julie Soler, the founder and the the owner who brought Ferran Adria on at El Bui, who was one of my dear, dear, dear friends. 
who died of a sort of a neurological disease a few years ago, but he was one of my dear, dear friends. And so is Clara Maria de Amesua, who is a part of that. And she was, uh, she's sort of the Julia child of Spain. And, and um, we just have a moment left, but how is COVID? Uh, what, how much of an impact has it had on Spain? Well, it's had a big impact, but I was there in June. I went around and I saw only two Americans and that was the last dinner I had it. And uh, the last night I was in Spain, I saw only two Americans, but it's, it's had a big impact. I mean, Carlos Falco was a friend of mine, the Marques de Grignon. He died in the early days of COVID. And then his, his daughter is his successor, Sandra, and her husband died two months later of COVID. Well, we have to leave it there, unfortunately. But uh, Jerry Dawes' book, Sunset in a Glass, Adventures of a Food and Wine Road Warrior in Spain. Uh, text and photographs by Jerry Dawes. Thank you so much for being on Look forward on Amazon, please. Enhanced Book Photography Edition. Okay. Thank you so All much right. for Thank being on Thank you very much, show. Leonard. I appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Jesse Lent, the executive producer of Leonard Lopin at Large, for all of the excellent work that they do throughout the week. You can access our archive of shows at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopinAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to step up and support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to wbai.org or by calling 212-209-2950. Right now, that's 212-209-2950. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique and dev content because WBA relies 100% on listener donations. We don't get funding from any other sources, which allows us to be totally free speech radio. If you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on this show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to keep this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's entirely listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible donation. And at the start of a new year, I hope you'll consider becoming a sustaining member of WBAI, what we call a BAI buddy, with a monthly contribution at whatever level you choose. My great thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support the station in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And we are off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again for Monday's show when Esquire magazine columnist Stephen Marsh will discuss his new book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. Have a great weekend. Don't do too much.